Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, at least for our final time in this study. Romans chapter 11. I'll meet you there. This is a a special day for us, and uh, if you've been with us, you understand what we've been doing as we've marched through Romans, and if you haven't, let me explain to you what we're doing. At the end of every chapter, we've stopped to look back at the whole chapter and have what can only be called a, a theological review. Let's see what that chapter says. And one of the, the purposes of that is at the end, if someone wants to go back and study this uh, by listening to the, um, the audio, Lord willing, they can, they can listen to all several hundred of the messages or they could just listen to 16, which are a, a, a sermon devoted to each chapter in total. But we have studied these, this chapter in great detail. Some of the chapters we've done have been you know, between 30 and 40 uh, sermons, and then we do one at the end. This is really helpful for me, honestly, because it makes sure that I'm getting the whole of the argument and not just pulling little verses out and making points. It's also a great way for me to be accountable to you to trace the argument through this book as well. One of the first questions every child learns is a one-word question And it goes like this. What is it? Why? You've heard this question before. Uh, Why do things work the way they do, Mom? Why do I have to do certain things, Dad? Why can I not do certain things? Why do we do the things that we we do? (laughs) How about this? Okay, uh, little little Billy, it's, it's, it's time to go to bed. Why? Because you need your rest. Why? Because you're tired. Why? Because you've played all day. Why? Because I gave you the opportunity. Why? Because God is good and he's given you reasons to to express your your energy. Why? Well, you need to go to bed. Why? So that I can have some peace. That's that's why. (laughs) I love little curious. Usually between ages three and four, the only thing they know how to ask is why. It's a great thing. And this... That's a good thing that you and I ask whether or not we, we become some of the annoying uh, uh, echoes of a, of a child or, or not. Look down at Romans chapter 12 for a second. I know you're in Romans 11. Romans 12. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, give your whole life in serious devotion to Christ. And you and I can say, why? Why would we do that? Paul answers that in the little phrase, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's the why. Now, let me break Romans down a little bit for you differently than maybe you've thought of before. Some people say, well, it's, it's eight chapters of theology and um, eight chapters of practical. I'm, I'm not sure that's the best way to break it down. Some say that it's, it's, no, it's, um, it's eight chapters of, of um, gospel truth, three chapters of Israel truth, and, and then uh, four chapters of, of truth for us. Well, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's that either. I think the book is broken down into two main big sections, Romans 1 through 11, 
and Romans 12 through 16. Romans 12 through 16 are the ethical application of Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12 through 16 is the so what? What do we do about this? Romans 12 through 16 is here's how to live. Why? Why should we live that way? Why should we say no to our flesh? And why would we say yes to God? Why? Because of his mercies. If you look, just leak back. We'll, we'll get here eventually, but just leak back up. Verse 30 of chapter 11. You were once disobedient to God, but now you have been shown what? Mercy. There's the gospel. Verse 32. God has walled up, cemented in, shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to us all. According to the mercy of the gospel, Paul says, I exhort you to live according to Christ. So, it behooves us, it's important, that's why we've spent some 120 sermons to get to this point, to understand what those mercies are. And remember that Paul calls them mercies when in the beginning of the book he called them graces. A grace is, grace is giving us that which we don't deserve. We love that. But remember, mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. It has a full eye to the wrath of God, giving us his full and furious wrath because of our sin, but holding it back because of his son. Extinguishing his full and furious wrath in the death of his own son on the cross. And so Paul can say in verse 22, behold the kindness and severity of God. Now let's look back at these mercies. It's taken us 315 315 verses to get to chapter 12. That's significant. Because Paul says you have to know this to live like that. Knowing precedes living. Now remember, the first and most pressing dilemma of the church, the first generation had to wrestle with this. (coughs) We've looked at this over and over through the book of Romans. Was where do we put Israel? Where do we put the Old Testament Where do we put the law in our theology of the gospel and of new covenant, New Testament truth? What about the first 39 books? What about the law? What about the Old Testament? What about Israel and the Jews? Several times we've consulted the first council in the church. The Jerusalem council shows up in Acts chapter 15. Just listen. Some of the men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren. They were saying, unless you are circumcised... You, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Put it in our vernacular. Unless you become Jewish, you can't become Christian. And if you want to be a Christian, you got to be Jewish first. Even by surgery. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, debated them. Even the uh, verse 5 of chapter 15 of Acts, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up. I love that. Some of the Pharisees were believers. It's necessary to circumcise these Gentile believers and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so Paul's um, answer is quite interesting. He says, "Um, that didn't work out so well for us as Jews. Now you're going to put this yoke upon them, placing upon the neck of these disciples a yoke. Verse 10 says, neither our fathers or we could bear. We couldn't obey the law perfectly. And now you're saying to be a Christian, you have to do it. Really? We're proof that that doesn't work. 
And then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are also. That is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Acts 15, 11. There's only one way of salvation and it's through Jesus Christ. And then Luke says, and everybody kept silent and listened. This is a tension between that first generation of Jew and Gentile believers that became a recurring theme in these epistles. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians. It, it's almost funny. It's, there's almost an, a, a humor here. So just listen. Paul is glorying in the, in the salvation of the Gentiles. In uh, Ephesians 3, 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. What an endearing term. Chapter 3, verse 6, to be specific, <laughs> that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ. Fellow partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, this glory was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What a privilege that I can preach to the Gentiles about Christ. They're our brothers. They're our sisters. We're one in Christ. And everybody's having a love fest. And then Paul says this. Chapter 4, verse 17. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord, that you live, you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. What is going on there? Well, we have to ask, how did the Gentiles walk? Romans chapter 1 tells us how the Gentiles walk. Now, I bring this, this whole tension up to highlight this confusion that existed in the early church about the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. And listen, the relationship between Jews and God. How should we relate as believers, Jews and Gentiles, but even more so, how does God relate to Jews who are not Christians and Jews who, who are Christians? The book of Romans addresses the, this question, these questions actually, more extensively than any place in the New Testament. The complicating relationship between Jews and God is tackled by Paul, in, especially in Romans 2 and in 9, 10, and 11. Now, chapter 11 that we're going to summarize in just a second, and we're going to go fast, is, is, is a 747. And i got to tell you, it takes a lot of runway to get a 747 off the tarmac. It, it takes a lot of runway, and so we're going to take a lot of runway, namely the first 11 chapters. So here we go. Before we can get to chapter 11, just hold on. Let's talk about these first 11, which climax, first 10, which climax in chapter 11. Number, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, Paul told us that the gospel is for everyone to the Jew first and also the Greek. Why the Jew first? Because it's a Jewish gospel. The Messiah is Jewish. Our Messiah, get this, our Savior is the Jewish Messiah. You realize that, right? We're just the grafted in people. We're a part of God's plan for this promise he made to Abraham. The, Jew, the, the gospel's for everyone. The Jew first, also the Greek. The Gentiles, however, are suppressing the truth of God 
in unrighteousness. Remember way back when we started this book, that word suppressing is like taking a suitcase and putting too much in it and sitting on it and trying to stuff it in there. They're suppressing, they're, they're putting the truth away in unrighteousness. They're living not according to God, but according to their flesh because they don't want to know God. They put him out of their sight, out of their mind, as far away from they can uh, as they can from their thinking because God, if he's God, is creator. If he's creator, he's judge. If he's judged, they're accountable. Their unrighteousness is manifested in many ways. You can look at the end of the chapter, but specifically he isolates homosexuality. He even includes disobedience to parents. And by the end of chapter one, the Jews are going, that's right, those Gentiles suppressing the truth. Can't believe that. They're just so hated by God. What, What rascals. And Paul says, okay, chapter two. Jews, you're in worse trouble because you've been given the promises of God, the law, the word of God, the prophets of God, whom you killed and stoned, Jesus said. You've been given all the privileges of God, temple worship, temple service, access to God, the holy of holies, the high priesthood. You've been given all that and you've reduced it to, I can work my way into heaven by being good enough. And so he says in chapter 2, as bad as the Gentiles are to the Jews, you're worse because you have no excuse. So you got the Gentiles going, oh man. And the Jews going, oh wow. And then you get to chapter 3 and he says, there's none righteous. Not even one. It's like just when you think it get, can't get worse, he says, ah, it's worse than you think. Every man is depraved. There's none righteous, not even, what's the word? One. And so that leads him at the end of chapter 3 to explain that great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? That we, we are only saved by what we believe, by what God has done. Specifically in the gospel, specifically in crucifying his son in the place of those who would believe. By proving it, by raising him from the dead. And, and by this time the Jews are going, hang on a second, I got a problem with that. Because that's not the way we learned how to approach God. So Paul, in all of chapter 4, says, actually, you learn the wrong way then. Because the very first Jew was Abraham. And he was saved, get this, by grace, through faith, and God counted that faith to him as righteousness. It's the exact same thing. And he's basically saying to the Jews of this time, this second temple nomism is what theologians call it, second temple law keepers. He's saying, you have entirely missed the point of the Jewish faith. It's always been by faith. It hasn't been by works. Chapter 5, he says, God's love is fundamentally different than ours. God demonstrates his own love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it leads him in the end of chapter five to say all sin came through one man, Adam. All righteousness comes through one man, Christ. We are all sons of Adam. We only become sons of Christ by faith. Sons of Adam by birth, sons of Christ by faith. And it's by faith alone, only faith alone. So you get to chapter six and he says, I know what you're thinking. If it's all by faith, if God does it all, I can live like I want. And so he asks this question, should we, should we sin that grace should abound? If, if God gives grace because of sin, well, the more I sin, the more grace I get. That makes sense. He says, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still, what? 
live in it. And so in chapter 6, it's that great chapter that begins this, this doctrine of sanctification. We live out what we know. If Christ died for our sin, why do we live for it? And just at the end of chapter 6, when you think, man, this is heavy. I have to be obedient. I have to be as righteous as possible. Paul says, um, let me tell you how hard that is. The good that I want to do, I find myself not doing. In fact, I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to do. And he ends by going, the sanctification is so hard. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who, not how or what, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then chapter 8, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. And then in chapter 8, he says, you've been adopted. You've been taken in by God. And that leads him in chapter, at the end of chapter 8 to say, because of this adoption, because we've come into relationship with God, you have to understand how that happened. It started in eternity past. And he uses big words like foreknown, predestined, elected, chosen. Eternity past. And one day, you're going to have face-to-face, faith becoming sight, relationship with him. And here's where we are in Romans 6 and 7, living out sanctification. To give us theological perspective is that great passage that God causes how many things? All things to work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> he says, God's called you, God's elected you, God's predestined you, God's chosen you. How will he not finish that? And it's almost as he says, God chose you, predominantly Gentiles, I know what you're thinking, but didn't God promise that he chose the Jews? So chapter 9 comes. He says, actually, God did choose the Jews. And he chose some, not others, some, not all. He actually uses this, this graphic illustration, both of election in general, the sovereignty of God and salvation in general, and the Jews specifically targeted, where he says, let me tell you how, how, how sovereign God is. There were two babies, twins, in their mother's womb. God chose one, not the other, who was the second born, not the first. Before they'd done anything right or wrong, he chose one and not the other. And then you feel the fingernails on the chalkboard, you go, ooh, that's awkward. He says, not only that, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And you're going, ooh, that's is he Calvinazi? What's going on here? This is heavy-duty Calvinism. What is he saying? And then before you, you can even finish that and take a breath, he says, why does he do that? Because he has compassion on, and you're ready to hear it. You're, well, here it comes. He has compassion on whom he has compassion, which is no answer. And he exercises loving kindness toward <laughs> the ones he wants to give grace to. No, no answer at all. It's according to his own purpose. And then you go, yes, but he says, shh. He's the potter, we're the clay. Who are you, O oh man, to question God? And by the end of chapter 11, you're going, wow, this is heavy, serious, disturbing theology. Then you come to chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, to everyone who, is, who, what? Believes. Paul, who taught the absolute sovereignty of God, also teaches that Christ can be the Savior of anyone who will believe. 
Now, if you're saying, Rick, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, don't blame me. Paul wrote this. This is what Paul's saying. Absolute sovereignty, complete human responsibility. So chapter 10, he says, Jesus from Nazareth is the only Savior for both Jews and Gentiles. And now we come to chapter 11. Okay, so what about the Jews? What about Israel? Let's review then chapter 11. Let me give you about seven reviews, okay? Seven theological points to consider. Number one, God has not rejected his people. And if you're a guest with us today or maybe you've been gone for a few weeks, we've studied all this in great detail. This is a high-altitude flyover, please. God has not rejected his people. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He understands that's the question. He's offered salvation to the, to, the, to the Gentiles. The Jews, as we'll see in a second, he's hardened their hearts because they rejected the Messiah. Has he rejected Israel then? No, no, no. May it never be, he says. This is his answer. Not that Jew, the Israel will become a state in 1948. That, that's not his answer. His answer is this. I too am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads against Israel? He's saying, listen, the greatest answer to God is not abandon his people Israel is this. I'm Jewish and I believe the gospel. That's the ultimate answer. Unless, but there were so many Gentiles believing, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the explosion, Paul is sent to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are saying, wait, we can't hear more. The Jews are saying, we want to kill you because you're saying this. Read the book of Acts. It's incredible. We say it over and over. Paul keeps going. Every, God says, go to the Gentiles. Paul shows up at Derby. Where does he go? The synagogue. How'd that work out for him? They beat him and drug him out in a ditch and left him for dead. Every city. You'd think he'd start listening, but he, he had such a love, as chapter 10 says, for his people that he, he couldn't stop evangelizing them. He says, listen, I, I'm saved and I'm an Israelite. That's proof that he hasn't rejected his people. But I'm not alone. And then he, he tells this really sad story. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a whiny. You hear the violins going in the story about Elijah. Lord, They've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, Elijah said. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. I'm your last hope, God. But what is the divine response to him? I love how Paul says that. What is the divine response to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's the illustration. So he's, now he gives the, the practical application of the illustration. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, Jews who believe the gospel, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. These Jews who are saved didn't get there by works. They got there by grace. And if there are any works involved, it nullifies the gospel. Paul says, I am proof myself that God is not finished with the Jews because I believe in Jesus the Messiah. A second point of theology that we bring from this chapter. There exists now a temporary hardening of the Jews. This is, this is pretty intense theology. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking 
which we'll find out in a moment, is righteousness, to be right before God, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen, Paul just said, I was the one who was one of the ones who was chosen, and the rest were, what's the word? Hardened. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Different word, but same concept in chapter 9. Here he hardened some of the Jews. Why? He didn't harden them. Listen, he didn't harden them not to believe. He hardened them because they did not believe. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Many Israelites, Jews, are hardened in a state of being hardened to the message about their Messiah because they've rejected him. By the way, what was Israel seeking? If you look back at chapter 9, verse 31 through chapter 10, verse 2, you'll find out they were seeking righteousness. They were seeking to be right with God. And they could never get enough of their own to please God. And, and, and that's the point of the gospel. Only, only God can give that in Christ. He's the only perfect, righteous life that ever lived. And he imputes, he grants that. He, he puts that in our financial, spiritual ledger because of faith. I'm often asked, <laughs> what does Hebrews 6 mean? You know Hebrews 6? You know, um, some have tasted the of God and they go away and it's impossible again to renew them to repentance I think specifically that's what's going on here I think Paul is speaking of here what the writer to the Hebrews is speaking of there where some Jews had come understood the claims of Christ to be the the, the Messiah rejected it and experienced hardening from God and I think it's still going on today God hardened their hearts because they rejected his son. Which leads to the question, well, what about his promises to Israel, to the Jews? Does that mean there's no hope for Israel? Number three, there is hope for the salvation of Israel. There is hope for the salvation of Israel. I say then, verse 11, they did not stumble as, so as to fall, did they? They didn't stumble so as to fall and be down and out have no access to God or from God. And he says, may it never be, but by their transgression. Now we see the unfolding plan of God, this mystery that God uses the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. For if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? I love that word fulfillment. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I'm glad to tell them about Christ. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are also. Let me go through that really fast. Ready? Verse 11. They've stumbled, but they haven't fallen. They haven't fallen completely away from God's reach. Verse 12. The sin of rejecting Jesus opened the door for Gentiles to be saved. 
and think how wonderful their salvation will be in the end. God will not reject them forever. Verse 13, Paul is quite happy to be an apostle to the Gentiles because he sees what God is doing. It makes Jews jealous if they really stop to think about the fact that God is dealing with this new church and not them. Verse 14, he understands that Gentile salvation can make Jews jealous. Verse 15, the rejection and acceptance of the gospel bears fruit, ultimately will bear fruit for Israel. And verse 16, what God began with Israel will come to fruition and salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. Those are the natural and the unnatural branches that we'll learn about next. There's hope. You're not done. May it never be. So number four, Looking at this review, Gentile believers have no reason to boast. This is so important. Gentile believers have no reason to boast. And he goes to this <laughs> illustration of a, um, uh, he calls it a, 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 a trunk or a, um, a root. It's, it's actually, think of a, a tree, a, a trunk of a tree. If some of the branches were broken off from this trunk, you, that these were the Jews who fell off the trunk, which is God's plan. They, they were broken off because of disbelief. You, being a wild olive branch, the Gentile, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root or trunk of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the, the Jews, the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is you, not you who supports the root, but the support that root, the, the, the root that supports you. You actually are borrowing Jewish theology. You believe in the Jewish Messiah. You will say then, branches were broken off, the Jews, so that I might be grafted in. And the idea is that there's this, is, there's this healthy trunk and these, these dying branches, branches that don't bear fruit. He breaks the branches that don't bear fruit off, grafts them into the, the tree, and the root, and they bear fruit, which, by the way, is entirely unnatural. You typically would take a trunk, which is at least getting nutrients from the ground, put good branches on that, and it would bloom. Bad branches don't get grafted into good trunks and bear fruit. He will say then, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. This is the Jews again. But you stand by your faith. They do believe. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. There was at one point where the Jewish nation were largely composed of believers, and they drifted from that. Make sure that your faith is holding strong. And he says in the midst of this, verse 22, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree, you were cut off from a fruitless tree, and we're never going to bear fruit. And grafted contrary to nature, and this goes back to the, the horticulture. No one. If you know anything about grafting, no one takes a bad branch, grafts it into a good uh, uh, a trunk, and expects that it's going to bear fruit. It, it doesn't. Now, they'll do the others. They'll take a root and put a good branch on that, and they'll draw nutrients and bear fruit on that. He says, this is not the way to... It's contrary to nature. How much more will those who are natural 
branches be grafted into their own olive tree. God is going to someday bring them back, so don't be arrogant. Let me say it as clearly as possible. Let me put this into our vernacular. Any blood-bought Christian, son or daughter of God by faith in Christ, who has one shred of anti-Semitic thought or attitude in their mind is condemnable. We, of all people, ought to be telling God's people about their Messiah, who we know. Instead of being jealous and just, we've got it, let the Jews... I, I live in a, a community, a neighborhood that's full of Orthodox Jews. I think about this all the time. My responsibility is, is to tell them their salvation isn't walking to the synagogue. Their salvation isn't obeying the, 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 um, the days. My wife babysits at the synagogue during their holy days to try to have an evangelistic outreach. Some of you do, the girls do as well. We know the truth about their religion. Don't be arrogant. Love Jews and tell them about Christ, he says. Number five, someday all Israel will be saved. Someday all Israel will be saved, but not in the way you might think. Verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to think that God is finished with the Jews. There's an end to this book, he says. It's a mystery. So that you do not be wise in your own estimation. That, here's the mystery, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I don't know who it is. God has elected and predestined this person. But at one point, the last Gentile in God's preordained plan is going to say, I believe. And then the Jews are going to have their eyes. Scales are going to fall off. You say, when will that be? I think during the tribulational period where there's, to believe is going to cost you. Cost you probably your life. God will one day save Israel. Verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. Now there's a lot of speculation about this. Just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I will take <coughs> away their sins. That's Isaiah 59. That didn't happen in, in the, 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 the wars and treaties of 1947 and the covenant of the reestablishment of Israel in 1948 didn't happen then. How do you know that? Because look at the last part. This is when I will take away their sins. Israel as a nation still rejects Jesus as their Messiah. You understand that, right? They're under the curse of God. But one day he'll save all Israel. You know who he's going to save? All Jews who believe the gospel, and that will be his new Israel. Number six, we have to be brief. God extends mercy to all who believe the gospel. Now we come back to where we started at the beginning, this mercy. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They're enemies toward the gospel, not they were enemies that we didn't like or that Christians didn't like. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. 
For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he will fulfill them through those who believe in the Messiah. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, here's the cycle, that they also will be shown mercy. For God has walled up, shut up all he's put in prison, all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Because of our sin, we need what, what only God can give, mercy. The withdrawal and the withholding of his true, furious, and righteous anger and wrath. Mercy is a gift that we should never presume on or cease to be amazed by. I mean, have you just stopped to think about it? If you're a Christian, when's the last time you just driving or ironing or walking or you just stopped and said I am not going to hell because Christ the Lord Jesus from Nazareth on a cross outside Jerusalem called Calvary the hill where it was standing took the wrath of God for me and instead of me and I don't have to bear it my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the is nailed to the cross, and I bear it, how long? No more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's the point here. Those who have received mercy relish in it. And by the way, James chapter 2, verse 13 says, judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Number seven, what we studied last week. To understand the, grandeur, understand the grandeur of the gospel is to exalt in doxology. It's just to explode in praise. It's just to say, what a God. What a God. Oh, the depth, verse 33, of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways. The next time you say, I don't get... God's sovereignty of salvation, man's responsibility. I, 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 just, I can't get it. He says, how, how overwhelming. You're, you're not going to get it. Infinite God's mind won't fit between your ears. It's too small. For who's known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who became his counselor? No one. Or who has first, <coughs> excuse me, given to him, loaned him, or obligated him so that it might be paid back to the one who loaned it. No one. For from him, foreknowledge, election, predestination, choosing. From him, through him, Romans 6, Romans 7, because of Christ, we can obey. And to him, glorification, one day being in the sight of Christ rather than just by faith. Justification, glorification, uh, sanctification, glorification. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And we learned all things is conditioned by what that means. All things here, all things related to salvation. To him be the glory, and it literally says, throughout the ages, in past, present, and future. So be it. Amen. Three triads of praise to God. Paul admits that these truths he's been speaking about, unsearchable, unfathomable. Does that... Does that encourage those of you who maybe with me have wrestled with Calvinism or the sovereignty of God and salvation and man's responsibility 
and you just say, it has to make sense or it's wrong. Paul says, it's right, and it won't make sense to you because you're not God. Unfathomable. Can't find the bottom. Can't, can't get, can't totally figure it out. We're called to believe things sometimes that we don't necessarily like. Where does that leave us? I think the discussion of Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is really the climax of Romans 1 through 11, lands us right here. One word. Humility. It's just to say, what a God. Just to say, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. I'm okay with believing everything he said if I don't understand every nuance, and I am okay being responsible for what he said to me and leaving that up to him. This is, by the way, the basis now of the ethical section that begins in chapter 12, verse 1. Theology matters. Eleven chapters of theology. I'm not being silly. Don't miss the fact that Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. He didn't put, therefore, present your bodies in chapter 1. He built the theology so that we would understand why, why, that why, this is why. Therefore, that's what he says in verse 12. So please don't be lazy about your theology. Please don't be arrogant about your theology. Please don't lose faith in your theology. And please don't be loose and freewheeling with your theology. And I would beg you not to be indifferent about your theology. Let me say it this way. This will be the bridge between the first 11 chapters and these last chapters. There is no way to rightly obey Christ if we wrongly understand his ways. Let me give you the numerical version of that. There is no way to rightly obey Christ chapters 12 through 16, if we wrongly, misun- wrongly understand his ways, chapters 1 through 11. There's no way to rightly obey Christ if we wrongly understand his ways. So we have worked really, really hard and eaten a lot of vegetables to get to this dessert called the ethical section in Romans 12 through 16. But that's the why. That's the why. So a child's favorite question is why? It should be the Christians too. It's okay to say why. God has given us answers. Why do I say no to the fleshly things I want to do? Because of the gospel. Why do I say yes to things that don't make sense to the world? Because of the gospel. What do you mean because of the gospel? 11 chapters of theology on what that means. So we come to the the part where Paul tells us what to do. And let me warn you before we get into chapter 12, if you don't like being told what to do, remember how I said the first 11 chapters, he calls us a lot of names, helpless, worthless, sinners, enemies of God. Well, in the last chapters, he says, and this is what you have to do. So 
the essence of the gospel is to believe the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord, the master. And now we come to what he's Lord over.